0: Uh, But before we do that, let's come to our God in prayer and ask for help with that task. Let's pray. Uh, Our gracious Heavenly Father, you tell us that all Scripture is breathed out by you, God breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, Please use me and my weakness to teach this word faithfully, so that all of us would be rebuked and corrected where needed, trained in righteousness and equipped to carry out the good works of application you would have us do in response to this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Who would you say has been uh, most significant in terms of modelling the Christian life to you? Uh, Maybe one or both of your parents? Maybe a friend that helped uh, lead you to Christ. Maybe a youth group leader or a pastor or even a YouTube preacher that you really stumbled across and resonated with. Uh, When I left home to study in Melbourne 19 years ago, I wrote on a piece of paper a list of around 10 names uh, of men from my home church in the country who I thought were good Christian role models. Uh, The purpose of this list was to really help me keep these guys in mind as I began to live out my Christian life in a new and different context. Now I searched for that list and I found it in our house just this week and I noticed I had written on uh, the top part of the paper these words, these are good blokes and don't you ever forget it. That's just a message to myself. Uh, Most of us get shaped by the Christian examples we have close to us. Uh, Now, as lovely as most of our examples are, it's important to know that what we are learning from them is actually in line with Jesus' view of discipleship. Uh, As I reflected with kind of 19 years' worth of hindsight on the names I had written on that list, uh, I came to the conclusion that while all of them were lovely men, I'm not sure all of them were the best examples of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, uh, as I've since come to understand that from the Bible. You see, it's good to have examples in our life, but they have to be the right examples. And in tonight's passage, we are given a picture of Christian discipleship that we can all learn from and live by. Uh, The author of this letter... Uh, Paul speaks of his own example and that of the other apostles as a means to show the Corinthians, but also us, what true discipleship looks like. Uh, We are being invited to learn from Paul tonight. In verse 6, Paul says that uh, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to learn from us, and in verse 16 he calls them to imitate him. Now, I've broken this passage up according to kind of three different ways Paul describes uh, his own pattern of living as an apostle, Uh, the faithful servant of Christ, the humble fool for Christ, and the loving father in Christ. Uh, We'll think about each one of those pictures that Paul paints of his own life, and as we do that, we'll think about what we can learn from him and his example and teaching today. So first... The faithful servant of Christ. Paul and the apostles lived to please and be faithful to their master, Jesus. And you see that in verse 1. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. See, Paul uses this expression, uh, the mysteries of God, really to describe God's plan to save people through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus. A plan which for ages past had been hidden and mysterious, but was now being revealed in the good news preached by Paul and the apostles. But why does Paul feel the need to start speaking about his role in terms of faithfulness and servanthood of Christ? Well, it's because he wanted the Corinthians, particularly their leaders, to start thinking of themselves in similar ways. You see, it would appear as we read this letter that a number of people and leaders in Corinth were kind of more interested in popularity among the people than they were in faithfulness to Jesus and the gospel that was taught by Paul. Uh, They were not people proclaiming the mysteries of God revealed in the saving message of the cross. Uh, They were proclaiming the wisdom of the world, revealed in the intellect and the style of the various leaders and preachers. And it would appear that that these leaders were gaining traction. We know from chapters 1 to 3, which we've already looked at, that the Corinthian believers seemed to like this teaching that was focused more on worldly wisdom. Uh, In verse 6, Paul implies that the church is kind of arrogant, puffed up with it, people favoring one person over another on the basis of perhaps that wisdom. See, Paul knew all this about the Corinthian church, and I suspect he knew that in the popularity stakes, he was probably bleeding numbers in that church because of his relentless focus on the cross over the wisdom of the world. But notice how little he actually cares about that. It's not the opinion of others he's interested in. It's not even his own opinion of himself that he's interested in. It's the opinion of the Lord Jesus. You see it there in verse 3. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Uh, For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. See, Paul was not a people pleaser. He was a Jesus pleaser. He was committed to being f- a faithful servant of Christ and his gospel. If people were disappointed with, uh, that he wasn't preaching the kind of wisdom they wanted to hear, if they were grumbling about Paul and his style of preaching behind the scenes, Paul's actually not shaken by that. He's not shaken by it because as as long as he was convicted, that he was faithfully discharging his duty as a herald of the gospel. See, like Paul, all believers are to operate on on the understanding that Jesus alone will be our judge, the judge of our faithfulness to him and our service of him. Only Jesus knows the hidden motives, the agendas of each individual's heart. That's what Paul reminds us in verse 5. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. Then praise will come to each one from God. You see, I think those of us who are in teaching or leadership positions really need to hear what Paul is saying in these verses, these opening words. Because if we're honest, I think many of us actually care a a great deal about the opinions of others. Uh, When someone stops coming to our growth group and then actually starts going to another growth group, that hits us. When someone tells us that our program or Our Bible study that we led was a little dry, that hits us. When people don't give us the affirmation that we would like, that hits us. But Paul is telling us to serve for the praise of Jesus, not for the praise of people. Because in in many ways, people aren't always correct, are they, in their opinions? They don't always see everything. At the end of the day, they're not your judge anyway. Jesus, on the other hand, is your master. And he sees all, he knows all, and your faithfulness won't go unnoticed by him. See, on that last day, Jesus is not going to say to his servants, Well done, good and popular servant, people just absolutely loved you. Or, Well done, good and successful servant. You really got the results. You got the numbers along to that event. No, Jesus is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You simply did what I wanted you to do. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Uh, When I did my traineeship at church 10 years ago, uh, my trainer Andy would often remind me that I have an audience of one. Uh, now, he wasn't telling me this uh, in, uh, to kind of just ignore the people I was ministering to uh, or to ignore their feedback that would occasionally come. It was simply reminding me that, uh, as Paul does here, that at a fundamental level, we serve Jesus Christ. He alone is our master. So I ask those of you, particularly in positions of leadership, are you seeking the praise of God or the praise of people. And if you think, well, actually you might be a little bit more prone to people-pleasing, what might it actually look like for you to grow in this area? So let's take the example of a growth group leader, which some of you are. What do you do when someone emails you with a host of suggestions that you take as criticisms about your Bible study? Is the answer here simply to ignore it and say, well, I'm serving Jesus, not this person, delete? Well, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. As a faithful servant of Jesus, you will actually listen to the feedback, knowing that you're not perfect. But you also won't immediately just seek to placate the person, just give them what they want to keep them happy. You put all their comments through the filter of what Jesus wants of you as a believer, as a leader. So maybe they say that your studies don't provide enough application. Well, actually, that's a legitimate point, perhaps. Jesus calls us to make disciples in Matthew 28 by teaching them to obey what he has commanded. We need to teach. We need to show how obedience to Jesus' word plays out through thoughtful application. So that might be actually a legitimate point they make, but maybe they suggest in the email that uh, your group just do topical sermons throughout the year instead of uh, expository uh, an expository approach to books of the Bible and looking at passages one by one. Now, on that point, you think about it, but you're not convicted. But you're convicted that Jesus actually wants people to understand His word in context. In depth. So maybe you decide that while your group might do a helpful uh, topical series at some point in the year, your bread and butter will actually remain expository teaching, looking at books, looking at passages within the books in order. But maybe you get another email from another member of your group who says, To you, thank you for your great leading. I wouldn't be where I am in my faith if it wasn't for you. Now, in that case, you remember that this person's opinion of you is of little importance. It's of little importance compared to Jesus, your master. So you don't get too big of a head from that comment. You redirect praise to Jesus, and you move on seeking to please Jesus. Paul sought to be a faithful servant of Christ, and so should we. Uh, but second, Paul describes himself as a humble fool for Christ in these verses to come. Now, none of us like the idea of being thought of, of as a fool uh, in the eyes of others. Quite the opposite, we love it when people think of us as wise and witty. See, much like the Corinthians, we often love to receive praise and affirmation regarding our intellect, our achievements, our style. We don't like to feel the shame of being thought of as a fool. And this is what I think drives so many of those little mini-debates you see uh, on, uh, between people on Facebook. You know, those conversation threads where people just go back and forward with each other over a range of social, political, theological issues. Uh, no one in those debates wants to be the one looking like the fool at the end of the conversation. No one wants to be the person who just got schooled by someone. Often we want to do the schooling. That's why I suspect many people sit at their computers, research more stats to back up their argument, then mull over the best way to deliver uh, deliver their comeback, and then post. But it never ends, because everyone wants to be the wise and witty person that comes out on top. No one wants to be the fool. And this is why this picture of kind of humble and costly discipleship that we see from Paul in these next verses. That's why I think it hits us so hard. It threatens our pride. Paul's example tells tells us that if we follow in his example, we too may become fools in the eyes of many. And like many of us, the Corinthian believers simply struggle to let go of their pride and embrace humble discipleship. They didn't want to be branded as the intellectual weaklings of society. They wanted to be known as the wise, the strong. This is why, as we've seen in earlier chapters, uh, that they were reluctant to embrace the message of the cross, Christ crucified, which they knew was foolishness to their Gentile neighbors. The Corinthians had instead opted for a focus on wisdom and intellect, which they had which they felt they excelled at, excelled at, and was a sign of their spiritual maturity and superiority. So, what is Paul's response to them? Well, actually, he calls out their arrogance and exposes their misguided view of discipleship. You see it in Paul's words in verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying and nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one another. Now, we don't entirely know what that saying, nothing beyond what is written, actually means. It's kind of lost in history. Um, But actually, the purpose of that saying is actually spelt out for us anyway. Stop being so proud. Uh, You guys are looking at yourself as the spiritually elite. You need to get a grip on reality and humble yourselves. Verse 7, for who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? Uh, If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? See, Paul is helping them to see that whatever gifts their church had, came not from them, but from God. And they did appear to have certain gifts. We know that from chapter 1. Paul's already spoken about them being enriched in speech and knowledge. But the point is that these were gifts from God to the church. They were given and received. They weren't self-produced. It's kind of like the kid who has an ear infection, takes a course of antibiotics, and then says to his parents look at how good my immune system is. The kid didn't do it, the meds did. He just received what was given to him. See, Paul's making the same point he made back in chapter 1. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, Paul's words here show us the kind of ugliness of a Christian community that is arrogant and proud where believers actually view themselves too highly. And I don't think this is just a Corinthian temptation, is it? Uh, Every church can fall into this way of thinking. Uh, We can have our own view of spiritual superiority. And I suspect one of the dangers for, say, Presbyterian congregations is to take pride in our Bible knowledge. Boy, we are knowledgeable when it comes to the Scriptures. Are those other churches just preaching wishy-washy, topical stuff? But we preach expository sermons. We work through whole passages of the books of the Bible in our studies. We can give you a summary of God's redemptive historical timeline that runs through the Bible. And we've got our people that we favor too, don't we? We have the likes of Tim Keller in our Prezi camp. We can trace our heritage to the great theologian John Calvin we like to point to the big and influential names in reformed evangelical, uh, in the reformed evangelical world and say, we're in their camp. See, pride can actually happen in every church community. A church community may take pride in other things, though, on its emphasis in outreach or community programs or the presence of particular spiritual gifts among the congregation. Now, as good as these things are, no church can boast in the gifts that have been given. Whether it's Bible knowledge, musical talent, good works, gifted leaders, they're all received as gifts from God. Churches do not produce them by their own power, even if they think they do. See, the Corinthians believed they had, though, a reason to boast They believed they had arrived kind of spiritually and that somehow many of the future promises of God's kingdom had already begun to fall on them. They saw themselves as full, rich, reigning as kings. Now sometimes it's hard to to see in the scriptures where an author is using a bit of irony in what he's saying. Uh, Paul doesn't signal his different tones with an appropriate emoji symbol so that it reads, you are already full, you are already rich, you have already begun to reign as kings, eye roll emoji. See, we don't have emojis, but we do have context. That's how we figure it out in the Bible. And the context tells us that Paul is saying these things in a little bit of ironic way to highlight just how absurd and arrogant their inflated view of themselves is. Uh, You guys are acting like you're living in the the glory and comfort of heaven in the here and now. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. He's he's not implying that uh, with these ironic words that believers are somehow lacking, that we're not full or enriched in Christ. You know, in Ephesians 1, uh, Paul's very clear that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And in that sense, we are full. We are enriched through the forgiveness and new life that we have through faith in Jesus. But as believers, we don't experience yet the full glory of our new life until Jesus returns and we dwell with God in the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day, we live out our new life actually in costly discipleship. Like our Lord, we endure shame, slander and rejection that comes with proclaiming and living out the message of the cross in a world that so often opposes that message. See, the Corinthians, it would seem, had forgotten that, opting for a comfortable discipleship over a costly discipleship, emphasizing the more acceptable message of wisdom rather than the foolish message of the cross. Verse 9, For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. Paul saying, unlike you guys, the world looks at us as an embarrassing spectacle. They don't see people in glory. They see us in shame. See, Paul uses the imagery of those ancient gladiator games in which condemned criminal, criminals were thrown into the public arena and made a spectacle of before being killed in some sort of shameful way for public entertainment. And Paul only ratchets up the contrast, doesn't he? He really wants the Corinthians to recognize the great chasm that exists between their experience of discipleship and their view of themselves, and the apostles' experience of discipleship and view of themselves. Look at verse 10. See the contrast. We are fools for Christ. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry, thirsty, we are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage, Now, that is a full-on description of discipleship, of seeing who you are in Christ, isn't it? But Jesus described discipleship in these words, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves daily and take up their cross and follow me. Who do you think was more reflective of Jesus' understanding of discipleship? The glorious Corinthians or the garbage apostles? Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking that following Jesus sounds uh, mighty depressing. But Jesus taught us that in losing our lives for him, we actually save them. Jesus calls people to put their trust in him for the unimaginable blessing of forgiveness and eternal life. But he also calls his followers to costly discipleship, where our lives are lived completely for him no matter what. Our master denied himself for our sake by dying on the cross. We are called to to daily deny ourselves for his name. See, what is your view of discipleship, of being a Christian? Would you say your view is more in line with the Corinthians or the apostles? Is your view of discipleship comfortable or costly? Now, I don't think this passage is saying that Believers won't ever experience degrees of comfort or success or status in their careers, for example. I don't think it's saying that every believer, a faithful believer, will necessarily be poor and destitute and outcast. But what Paul is getting at here is the radical nature of Christian discipleship. Following Jesus will always be countercultural, and where there's a clash with the culture, we actually bear the cost whether it's a cost to our plans, what we want to do, our reputation, our income, our relationships, have you seen any of that cost in your own life? Because we want to be uh, we want Jesus' view of discipleship at play in our lives, don't we? Is your view of discipleship comfortable or countercultural and costly? Now, I suspect most of us wrestle with this at some level. I certainly wrestle with it. I wrestle with the idea that I'm being called out of my comfort and into cost for Jesus' sake. I remember chatting with one of my neighbours who I was getting to know at the time, and there he was just perched up against my fence, and he actually says to me, what is it that you actually do? (laughs) I'm sorry, but I have no idea what a pastor is. Uh, It's in moments like this that, you know, I sometimes feel the clash between the comfort and the cost. The comfort side of me says, don't make him think too much less of you. Well, Like the Corinthians, it's nice to be seen as something significant in that moment, isn't it? Couldn't I just speak generally about being a kind of spiritual guide for people? Couldn't I point to the community work that we do here at Bundy? Now, couldn't I also sort of slip into the conversation that I had to learn two ancient languages in my time at college? See, a comfortable discipleship says, say all those things. But a costly discipleship says, actually, I'm willing to pay the potential reputational cost and have this guy see me as a fool for Christ. For my Lord suffered and died for me, my Lord rose from the dead and will come again and be revealed as Lord of all, including this guy's Lord. And my Lord actually helps me in this moment, I think, to do what he wants me to. So with that in mind, I imperfectly explain to him that my job is to teach people from the Bible about the forgiveness of sins that comes through believing in Jesus who died for our sins. Now, let's be honest, the cost in that moment was quite minimal in many ways, wasn't it? I don't think I expected this guy to revile me, persecute, slander me, treat me like scum of the earth, as Paul points out here. But you see, if we are going to be believers who do kind of end up paying, uh, being willing to pay the bigger costs in our discipleship, we actually first need to ask for God's help to endure those smaller costs so that we get used to being the kind of Christians Jesus wants us to be, who, people who daily deny ourselves, daily take up our cross and follow him. And God is gracious, he's patient with us, and he's always willing to help us in that. Paul and the apostles humbled themselves and became fools for Christ in the eyes of the world, and we are called to do likewise. But third and finally, uh, Paul describes his relationship to the Corinthian church like a loving father in Christ. Um, it's a bit slow on the old slides. How do you think the Corinthians would be feeling at this point in the letter, after Paul's just painted that contrast? Paul has just exposed their understanding of themselves as completely flawed, Imagine having your pride and your comfort directly contrasted with a picture of cross shaped humility and suffering that Paul and the apostles just uh, was just described. How would that make you feel a couple of years ago? Ruth and I popped into a local community event promoting the value of reducing household waste. Now, a lady at this event uh, got talking to us, and she shared with Ruth and I all the things that she had done to cut down on her household waste. And after explaining this, she then asked us, so are you recyclers too? To which Ruth and I sheepishly said, oh, there's probably a bit of room for improvement in that area. You see, in fact, little did that lady know We had just that week literally bought a bigger general waste bin and we were really scared that people would soon see that. See, it's easy to feel ashamed in the face of such devoted commitment. Is that the point of Paul's words to the Corinthians here? Is he simply just out to shame them? Well, no, look at what Paul says. I am not writing this to shame you but to warn you as my dear children, for you, have, you may, have many countless, uh, may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul was, in some sense, like a spiritual father to these particular believers. He wasn't responsible for their salvation, obviously, but he was the one who first preached the gospel to them. He was present as they became born again followers of Jesus. And so like a devoted and faithful dad... He wasn't out to shame and humiliate the kids, but nor was he seeking to be their buddies like perhaps many of those other instructors had been. Instructors had been. He was primarily invested in their well-being. He didn't want them to have an unhealthy or an incorrect view of themselves. He didn't want them to lose sight of the centrality of the cross in their lives. And that's why out of love and concern for them, he tells them to follow his example in life. Verse 16, therefore I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ, just as I teach every church, everywhere in every church. Paul is telling that church to follow his example, but to also remember his ways and teaching as and a Christ-commissioned apostle, which actually applies to every church. Uh, This is why he sends Timothy to Corinth. And it's actually not until these final verses in the chapter that you see how necessary Timothy's visit actually is. Paul again refers to this church as arrogant. That's been coming up a bit recently. Living as though he weren't actually coming back. He wasn't actually coming back, leaving as though they could now safely move on from Paul and his cross-focused teaching. But notice Paul's response in verse uh, in verse 9. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, 19. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and in and a spirit of gentleness? Now, some have understood uh, this to mean that the kingdom of God is not a matter of, say, sermons and teaching and all that talky type of stuff. Rather, perhaps, powerful displays of the Spirit in other ways. But actually, the power that Paul has in mind here is actually a message, a teaching, not a, a worldly teaching of wisdom, but a message of Christ crucified. The message that he says back in chapter 1 is the power of God to us who are being saved. Many in the Corinthian church had made the mistake of thinking they were ready to move on from Paul's teaching and the cross and all its implications in their life. They mistakenly believed that they needed to move on from this message in order to gain some higher, more refined version of Christianity perhaps. And so Paul as a loving father is saying to them, don't do that. The real power comes from the gospel message and its implications for your life, which we've been telling you as apostles. And it's really on that point of application that I just want to bring things to a close. Now, we've seen that true discipleship uh, involves being uh, a faithful servant of Christ, a humble fool for Christ, but it also means that we keep listening to the word of the apostles in the New Testament who teach us the ways of Christ. Now, Paul's not our father in the same way that he was to the Corinthians, but he is one of the apostles sent by Jesus to teach us about the gospel and what it looks like to live that gospel out in our daily lives. You see, it's not just the Corinthians who sometimes want to move on from Paul. Or the other apostles, we can do it too. We can think of someone like Paul in the New Testament and just think his teaching's out of date. Or it's misguided in some issues, or whether it be issues of marriage or sexuality or submission to government, we can downplay his words in the New Testament, believing them to be perhaps of less significance to maybe the words of Jesus in the Gospels. You actually see this in the red letter Christian movement. A group of believers who put all the focus on the words of Jesus in the Gospels, which are sometimes written in red in some Bibles. But you see, actually in doing that, they're essentially saying that the words of Paul and the apostles, the other New Testament writers, well, they're perhaps less important, less powerful, less authoritative. But these are Jesus' apostles and they pass on Jesus' message. Paul Barnett helpfully says, the modern problem with Paul is the Corinthians' ancient problem with Paul. Discipleship involves a learning from the apostles, not moving on from them. And this is important to note, as this letter starts now to engage with a number of different matters of Christian living, how we think about our sexuality, what we do when we're in disputes with one another. Marriage, singleness, divorce, many things that actually have great significance in our lives and in how we think about things. Jesus wants us to listen to what he is saying through Paul in all of those matters. That is why in our church services, in our growth groups, often in one-to-one meetings, we'll often give some portion of the year to looking at Uh, What the apostles teach us in the New Testament, just as we're doing now in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Discipleship is marked by listening to the words of the apostles, not moving on from them. Well, in speaking about his own life and ministry, Paul has modelled for us what Christian discipleship looks like, what it is to be a Christian. It's marked by faithfulness, not people pleasing, humility, not pride. It's costly, not comfortable, and it holds the powerful gospel-centered words of Jesus and his apostles. I'm going to pray now that that picture of discipleship will actually be reflected among us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your words tonight. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles. Uh, Please let his life and the life of the others be a guide to us as we seek to live for our Lord Jesus. Uh, Help us to avoid people-pleasing and live as faithful servants of Christ. Help us to humble ourselves and embrace costly discipleship. And help us keep coming back to the words of your scriptures, remembering that uh, the men who wrote them were your messengers, sent to teach us what it looks like to live out the gospel in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.